If we take, if we take those words seriously, and that really is a prayer of our hearts, and if we take that before the Father today and, and really mean that, that, just those two lines at the beginning of that song, that's the, that's the beginning of real revival in us. That God would take away that desire that we have to sin and straighten those bent desires in us. And if we mean that, that we'd have real church in here today. And I hope you do. I hope that's your desire. Um, just a few moments from now, we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper together. And what a great prayer to pray, even in lieu of that, as you think about what that means. What, is it, what does it mean to receive the bread and receive the cup that represents Christ and what he did for us and why he did it? And payment for sin made. And pray that God would, would do that for us. Why don't you open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. We're continuing this, this powerful letter. And think of it this way. The letter that the Holy, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that we call 1 Timothy is aimed at the church. How does the church function? How does the church live? How should we behave, is the word he uses in chapter 3. How do we function as a people of God, living in the church of God? And then in, in chapter 2, we'll see it on a more sort of personal level. How should you and I live, and how should you and I function? So look at the church, continuing in this great lesson, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather... Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, these things, the fundamental things of your word, the things in which we have set our hope, the message that gives hope to anybody who would hear it and respond to it, the message that saves us, transforms us, and calls us to live under your great and perfect rule as citizens, fellow citizens of your kingdom. Father, these things we put in front of us today, and I pray that we always would. Father, I pray that you create a culture among us centered around these things and how we teach them to one another, how we encourage them in each other, how we expect them from each other. And Father, you be glorified. God, speak to us today, to every person that's here, the, the seasoned believer, the brand new believer. The person who's not yet a believer, perhaps, that's exploring, discovering, Father, speak, and I pray that we'd hear from you. God, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself this way. I pray that we would live in right response to what we learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully you've already thought about, as you're looking at that text, it's kind of jumping into a midpoint here, what are these things? What's he talking about? These things. He says at the beginning, if you put these things before the brothers, verse 11, he says, command these things. What are these things? What's, what's the point of the text here? The things are the core of discipling. 
The very core of disciple-making are these things. And it's really this. If you go back just a little bit to chapter 3, you'll see in verse 16 this statement. And it's like a hymn. It's like a catechism. It's a, it's a phrase often repeated in the early church. The foundations of the gospel summarized. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. That's Jesus. God came in the flesh. This is central to the gospel, that God became man. He came to us, came to earth. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was identified as the Son of God by the Spirit of God upon his baptism. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The whole summary of who Jesus is. His life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, his visible witnessed ascension his promised imminent return all these things this is the core of it let's center around what we would call in one big word you can write across your notes the gospel what is the good news the good news that jesus came proclaiming you can be a member of god's kingdom family through this proclamation of good news if you'll trust it believe it and that's contrasted with this spirit says expressly chapter 4 verse 1 in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons so he says, if you put the truth before people, if you keep the gospel before people, if you'll do this, if you'll put these things before them, Timothy, you'll be a good servant. You'll be fulfilling my task. Because in the face of the truth are so many lies, so many deceptions, so many false gospels, so many distortions. And these are the things that ruin people. And not just ruin people in this life. These are the things that bring about destruction in, in the next life. So he says, put these things before the brothers. Again, it's like I prayed just a moment ago that you and I would be committed to creating a culture of disciple-making among us. That these things we're just putting forth all the time. We're talking about them. We're discussing the implications of them. We're understanding them better and better and more and more deeply. That when we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about simply the plan of salvation. Believe these things. Say this prayer. Stand on this truth and you get to go to heaven when you die. We're talking about the declaration that Jesus has come into the world to conquer the kingdom of sin and death and Satan and bring about the kingdom of his own rule and reign. And that we would live under his authority, we would live under the rule and reign of Christ, and we could know him now, we could experience his presence now, we could be blessed by him now, we could be faithful to him now, we could enjoy him forever. That we put this before each, each other all the time. That that's just our culture. Let's talk about what it means to be followers of Christ. He says, command and teach these things. We'll come back to the command part in a second. But he's making sure that you and I understand this. When we're talking about the gospel, this is more than something to simply be believed. It's something to be obeyed. The gospel is more than something that we hold true. The gospel is something that we consistently do. This is the essence of what it means to follow Christ, to do this. And again, we'll come back to that phrase, command and teach, in just a moment. So, if the things, the core of disciple-making is the gospel, then the irreducible minimum of this, of this sanctification, discipling, is the truth. Disciple-making is the human side of sanctification. There's the Holy Spirit side. There's what God does in the inward person. There's what the Holy Spirit does that changes our attitudes and our hearts and our desires and does this great work in us, empowering us to do these things. 
The human side of this is disciple-making, the things that we learn and study and things we do, the things we hold each other accountable for, all these things are the human side of this. And the irreducible minimum, if you're going to be discipled rightly, it's the truth. Jesus prayed this, John chapter 17, verse 17. When Jesus is praying what we call the high priestly prayer, Jesus interceding for his disciples, first generation, first iteration of disciples, and every generation since, here's part of what he prays. Chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How is God going to fit us for heaven? How is God going to shape us into the image of Christ? How is God going to make us into the sort of people that he saved us to be? That's called sanctification. And the means by sanctification, the, the tool that God will use, is the truth. When we say the truth, it's not your truth, my truth. It's not subjective truth. It's objective truth. It's the word of God truth. God shapes his people through the word. He shapes his people through the teaching of it, the understanding of it, the obedience of it. This is how God makes us and forms us. So we rightly say then that the core of discipling is not just truth, but biblical truth. The core of disciple making is biblical truth. You want to grow up into maturity? You want to become the person that God saved you to be? Then it requires and it's centered on biblical truth. I love this statement I read in an article this week by Josh Bice. And he talks about discipling and community and building people up. Listen to what he said. He said, you can build community around almost anything. Wouldn't you agree with that? You can build community around almost anything. Coffee to athletics. One foundational necessity for Christian discipleship is biblical theology. In order to lead people to a higher knowledge of God, such knowledge is built upon a firm foundation of the gospel. He said, this is where many small groups derail themselves in discipleship. Listen to what he said. They gather over food. They have deep and rich conversations. They build important relationships. But they don't have strong teaching. And what they do learn in those settings can often be shallow. Now, that's not the case for all small groups. But that ditch has certainly claimed a massive number of small groups through the years. Theology matters, and it's a necessity to build discipling relationships on God's word in order to see people grow spiritually. How many older people do you know who claim to have been saved for many years but don't possess the theological capabilities to disciple someone in the faith? We focused on relationships, and we focused on things that are kind of nebulously defined like community. But what about growing people up in Christ? For so many reasons, as we'll see in just a moment. But this is an important note, and I want you to make sure you note this in your notes. I didn't give you a blank for this. There's not space for this, so find it somewhere on your page. We're not talking about theology just for information's sake. And I want to make this point very clear, and I want to center in on it just for a moment. We're not talking about theology just for education, information. We're not talking about knowing more and more facts. We're not talking about trying to create scholarship as the primary goal. I love this tweet I read this week. Being a biblical scholar doesn't make you a faithful Christian any more than being a lawyer makes you a law-abiding citizen. No offense to the lawyers in the room. You catch that? Being a biblical scholar doesn't make you a faithful Christian any more than being a lawyer makes you a law-abiding citizen. Just because you know them does, doesn't mean that you do them, that you love them, and that you live them. So remember what he said. He said, command and teach these things. So the foundation is the truth, but the truth is not something simply to be believed. 
The truth is something to be obeyed. So command these things, do these things. We're talking about theology, truth, doctrine, for obedience. Teaching the truth for obedience for the sake of Christ-likeness. Truth, obedience, with the aim of Christ-likeness. That's the aim always. Think about what Jesus said for a moment. And Jesus' definition of discipleship is so different than ours sometimes. Jesus said in John, I mean, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says a, a disciple, when they're fully trained, will be like his teacher. I mean, that's first century disciple making. A rabbi teaches, he gathers students. Initially, those students aren't allowed to speak. They're there just to learn. And then when they've learned a certain amount so they can ask things with, with reasonable intelligence and understanding, then they're able to speak and ask questions. And eventually they'll be elevated to the point where they too get the opportunity to teach under the tutelage of that rabbi. But all along they're trying to find out, what is he saying? What does it mean? How do I do this? And they don't just simply learn and listen. They emulate, they follow, they spend time with until they become like him. The highest calling of discipleship is not how much you know, it's how much you look like Christ. The aim of discipleship is not knowledge, it's Christ-likeness. The highest calling of a disciple is to imitate his teacher. This is why when Paul is teaching Timothy, he calls on Timothy to follow his example. We'll see this in a few, when we get there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. That was the model of discipling. You know what I teach, but you also know who I am and how I live and how I function and what I do. You've seen my life up close. Follow this. Do this. And Paul didn't hesitate to call on every believer to do the same thing. It wasn't just Paul to Timothy. It's a model of Christianity. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 and following. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to push you forward. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to encourage you. But though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. What is he saying? You can pick up lots of information from lots of different sources. You can read books and you can listen to podcasts and you can download information. You have plenty of guides. What you need is a spiritual father who will say, I care about you. And I'm willing to correct you. I'm always going to love you, and I'm always going to want what's best for you. And I'm going to live in such a way that you have an example to follow. That's the aim. Philippians 4.9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen. Think about that. Learned and received, heard and seen. Practice these things. Do this. That's the aim. Let me make a brief case before we move on in your notes, and I don't want you to be I don't want you to be dictated by the pace of the notes, so just stick with me for a moment. Here's the challenge for us. Here's my concern. We've truncated the gospel. We've made it less than what the Bible really teaches and what's, what God really intends. Um, let me give you a case study on this. If I were to ask you this question, is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? what would your answer be? Is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? See, I'm afraid far too often in our 
particular brand of Christianity, our church culture, American evangelical Christianity, we've made a distinction between those two things that the Bible never does. Jesus certainly never did. That you can become a Christian just simply by believing a few things and then accepting the free pass to heaven. And discipleship becomes functionally uh, optional. So you can receive Jesus as Lord, and then later at some point in your life you can decide if you want to you can receive him as Savior and later decide if you want to surrender to his lordship and authority. But that's not the way that the scriptures teach what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus emphatically calls people to follow me, to be my disciples, to live under my authority and to become like me. Dallas Willard is famous for saying that the New Testament is a book by disciples for disciples. That's what it is. This is what the scriptures are about. And by so doing, by separating those two things, that you can believe certain things and know you're going to go to heaven when you die, but how you live doesn't really matter because that's not part of the gospel. What we have done is systematically allowed for the deconstruction of our faith. Remember last week we talked about that deconstruction, people walking away. We talked about the projections in the future of the next couple of decades of millions and millions of young people walking away. But what they're walking away from is a truncated gospel, not a biblical one. They're walking away from a belief-only gospel, a forgiveness-only gospel. They're walking away from a me-centered sort of gospel. If you'll simply say these things, pray these words, if you'll say this right phrase, you'll have God over a barrel, he'll forgive your sins, you get to go to heaven when you die, and how you live is now all optional. We want you to live like Christ. We want you to give up sinful behavior. We, we want you to desire spiritual things, and, and we want you to serve the Lord and serve the church and be on mission. We want you to do all those things. They're functionally optional. We just want to make sure when you die, you get to go to heaven. And we have created two tiers. And I'm, I'm quite convinced that you can't separate those two things and that every person who genuinely follows Christ is a disciple, and every true Christian has to be a disciple and those who are not disciples probably aren't real Christians. Jesus didn't command, go into all the world and make converts. Jesus commanded that we would go into all the world and make disciples. 269 times the word disciple is used in the New Testament. 269 times. Christianity was never uh, intended to produce Christians. It's designed to produce disciples. Those would follow after Christ. So, here's the theme of this chapter, um, this particular passage of Scripture. There's one dominant command. It's clear. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, the false things that would just draw people away, the silly speculations, the preposterous notions, the worldly philosophies. Train yourself for godliness. Everything else is centered around that particular command, training yourself for godliness. So let's talk about serious training. This is the course of discipling, training. You know, I was thinking about as I was putting some thoughts together this weekend to add to this message. If I were just to throw out the word training and Christianity, I think those are two things that would probably seem fairly disconnected to most Christians today. Now, if you're of an older generation, you remember this in Baptist life, we used to have a thing we called uh, discipleship training. Remember, we go to discipleship training. Not a phrase we use much anymore. I, I think we disassociated even the notion of my walk with Christ, my faith in Christ, my spiritual life, with the notion of training. Now, just as a quick poll, just to see if we're on the same page here, for those of you who are, are employed, those of you who work, how, 
How many of you in your job, you require for yourself or people that work for you training? Raise your hand. Is training part of your job? Training anyone? Just a few? Some of you must have some lousy companies if, you don't, <laughs> if there's no training. And think about how you train people. You think about what that training entails and the expectations behind it and the follow-up that goes along with it. You, you think about the parameters of it. Uh, how many of you in this room would consider yourself athletes? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Come on. Listen, guys, it, I, it could have been 40 years ago. Raise your hand. Thank you. Look at all the hands going up all over the room. I don't want to hear about your football career, okay? I really don't. You know that anything that you're committed to do well requires training. It, it requires training. And here's what, here's what I want you to know as far as the Christian life, the spiritual life. There are certain things that you and I might be limited out there in the world. I mean, you could train me all day. I'm never going to become a, a major league pitcher. I could go toward, towards all kinds of training. I, I doubt I'll ever play around the golf under 120. Uh, it's just not going to happen for me. Now, maybe I could get it down to 110. I don't know. I'm never going to break 80 in this lifetime. I know it's not going to happen. But here's what I can promise you. Every Christian, every single one, can be trained for godliness. Every single one. You have a built-in trainer. You have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're committed to it, if you want it, you can do it. You know, I hear people say all the time, you know, it's, it's just hard for me to read, or I don't understand those kind of things, or, you know, I, I don't understand the Bible. It's because you've never been trained. You've never attempted the training. If you want to get serious about knowing God, not just speculating about God, not just having emotions about God, but knowing the God that is revealed in His Word, time and truth, then you can. You can be trained in godliness. If you want to know how to fight sin, you can know how to fight sin. If you want to know how to teach scriptures, you can know how to teach scriptures. If you want to know how to disciple someone, lead someone to the faith, all these things, you can. You can be trained in that. That's a course of discipling. The problem is, and I'm not intending to step on your toes. I step on yours as mine as well as mine at the same time. A lot of us have become spiritually soft and weak. You know, the word for that physically would be we're approaching atrophy. I remember when I was in college, I broke both my arms, and so both were casted and pinned and screws and all these things for such a long period of time that I remember it being just a huge accomplishment that I could pull a Cheeto out of a bag with my right hand. I wonder if I was ever even going to drive a car again. And I remember that day. I can still remember when those pins and screws all came out of my hands and arms, those fixators came off, and my hands just dropped, just like wet rags. And it took months to regain any strength. You know, atrophy, lack of use, lack of training. For, for months, I didn't use either of my hands, my arms. Atrophy. Well, what about you spiritually? Maybe, maybe you're starting to show some marks of spiritual atrophy. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I just sat down with pen and paper and just started writing some things. What does atrophy begin to look like? When I begin to get soft and weak in my faith, what are some signs of that for me? And maybe one of these will speak to you. You don't pray much. And if you do pray, it's not with any depth. It's not with any focus. It's not with any discipline or consistency. I mean, you may throw some prayers out there, you know, here and there, and you know, when a crisis comes or, you know, something particularly troubling hits, but the idea of I'm going to pray consistently and faithfully and, and wait on God to hear, that's just not part of it. Or maybe you've lost your appetite for God. I was going to say for spiritual things, but that's just so broad, so nebulous. You've lost your appetite for God. 
you know, I'm just not into reading scripture anymore and sermons bore me and the only time I ever really hear anything about God is if I come to church and you know sometimes I'm not even actively listening there you rarely talk about Jesus he's just not a focal point you know you find yourself talking about all the other things you're interested in the economy our government the border the NCAA tournament you know, you make the list of things that you're interested in, but Jesus is just not one of them. You're compromising now morally. I mean, you've got more gray areas in your life than you've ever had. Things that used to be black and white for you are now suddenly gray. They're nuanced. You're trying to figure it out. Or maybe spiritually you've become okay with just being okay. You know what I mean? You've become okay with just being okay. You're not challenging yourself anymore. You're okay with just being sort of a, I don't know, a spiritual couch potato. You're not using your spiritual gifts. In fact, you may not even know what they are. I mean, you don't have that, you don't have that lane that you feel like you run in because this is what God created you to do. God made you passionate for it and he gifted you for it. You're just not, you're not there. And when you, when you hear stuff and you're having conversations with people and you're watching the news and, and all, you're engaging in, in serious issues, you don't process them biblically. You process them emotionally or politically or psychologically or philosophically or whatever it may be, but not biblically. All these are signs. And this spiritual atrophy that marks the majority of Christians today has left us so vulnerable. Why are we so vulnerable to the sort of false teaching that Paul told Timothy 2,000 years ago could wreak havoc on the church if it was left unchecked? Why have we become so suddenly vulnerable to it? Why are we seeing whole denominations collapse over things that used to be clear-cut and now all of a sudden they're debatable things, they're nebulous things, they're gray things? Why are we seeing so many people walk away? How have we become so weak, so soft, so vulnerable, so susceptible to the lies of, of the culture around us? Listen, atrophy doesn't happen overnight. It always starts with the Apathy. That indifference leads to spiritual atrophy. But Paul speaks in this text of the value of training for godliness. And again, I was going to make a list, but for time's sake, I won't. He says, godliness is of value in every way. So I just want to flip the equation just a little bit. In what way is training for godliness not valuable? How could that ever be a, a, a not valuable thing? He says, you know physical training is valuable in some ways. Well, I mean, we know that. You feel better when you're healthier. You feel better when you're sleeping well. You feel better when you're eating right. You feel better when you're exercising. These are not debatable things. We know the value of those things. But he says spiritual training, training for godliness, that's valuable in every way, both in the life you're living now and the life to come. And in every way, that means that training for godliness is, is beneficial for your mental and emotional health. You know, I'm not a counselor. I, I, I try to give biblical counsel to people, and I'll pray with people, encourage people from truth and from the scriptures, but I'm not a counselor. But I find it so amazing to me, particularly in the day in which we live, that there's so many Christians that just go right around the biblical portion and want to go right to the medical or to the psychological. And I'm not saying there's not a medical component or a psychological component. I'm not saying there's not a, a time and place and a necessary place for both of those things. But why would we avert our attention from 
training for godliness, to be fully integrated as a person, to what I believe, and what I think, and what I do all match. Train myself for godliness for my emotional and mental health. My physical health is better when I'm living a godly life. When I'm watching what I think and watch and see and live, all that affects my physical health. My relational health is better. I tell every couple that I counsel before they get married that the most beneficial thing that you can offer your marriage is to be faithfully walking with Christ. I mean, there are a lot of other skills you're going to need. And there are a lot of other things that you can learn. But the best gift you can give your spouse is to be a good Christian, to be a disciple. What about your spiritual strength and endurance? as it gets harder and harder to be a Christian in the culture that we live in. Don't you think that training would affect that? Your usefulness to Christ. And sometimes just the broad and hard to specify blessings of just living in a way that honors Him. And God blesses those who do that. So let me give you some questions to consider in your own training just for a moment. And write these down quickly. Number one, are you regularly hearing the truth taught? Are you regularly hearing the truth taught? And then, uh, let me add something to that for a moment. Are you listening? Are you listening? Because there is a difference, you know. Am I listening? Am I trying to hear? Am I trying to hear what God would be saying to me? What God wants me to do? And am I listening with teachable spirit? Am I hearing the truth taught? Am I listening to it? And am I learning how to ingest the truth for myself? I'm, I'm listening to it. I'm integrating it to my life. I'm thinking about how does this speak to this situation in my life, this challenge in my life, this struggle in my life, this area of doubt in my life? How is the truth speaking to me? Am I integrating it? I'm hearing it, listening to it. God, what are you saying to me in this? Number three, you're examining and filtering what you hear in general, in light of the truth. This is about being discerning. So when I hear something that sounds good or, you know, is motivational or challenging to me, do I, have a, do I have a means by which I can filter it and say, is that right or true or is it not? And the only thing that reliably gives us that is the knowledge of Scripture. Can I run this through the filter of God's Word and see how it comes out on the other side? Examining and filtering. Number four, in my training for godliness, am I speaking the truth in love to other brothers and sisters? This is the, the putting it before them. Let's put it before each other. When we're having conversations and people have questions about things, what are we putting before them? Just opinions, ideas, cliches? How about putting forth Scripture? When someone's struggling with a wrong belief, what are we putting before them? How about putting Scripture? Uh, when someone is struggling in sin and you love them enough to be involved in it with them, to help them, what are you putting in front of them? Speaking the truth in love, which is Scripture. And ultimately, number five, are you trusting and living by the truth? Because again, it's not about just my knowledge of it. It's what do I do with this? How do I live this? This is a, this is a truth to be obeyed, not just believed. And he uses this phrase, Look back at the text. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I believe he's referencing the gospel statement he'd made several verses earlier. And he says this, For to this end we toil and strive. 
It's just a quick question of self-examination. How much of your Christian life, your Christian walk, your relationship with Christ could be marked by your toiling and striving? Your toiling and striving. Because it's an absolute myth that if it's not easy, that you shouldn't try it. You know, this idea that if it's meant to be, it'll just be easy. You know, that's the conversation that comes up sometimes in, in marriage counseling with folks. It shouldn't be this hard. Why not? It's worth working for. It's worth fighting for. It's worth struggling through. You, know, you learn how to do your job by working through the hard things and learning to overcome them. You learn how to deal with situations in life by facing adversity and fighting through. You ought to toil and strive for these things, not just sit passively by. Toiling and striving are the marks of the spiritual discipline of godliness, of training yourself for godliness. Are you toiling and striving? I've got three key words here for you. I just want you to think about these and, and how you approach your relationship with Christ. Consistency. Consistency. Spiritual training. Training for godliness requires consistency. That's called discipline. It's deciding I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it every day. I'm going to set aside a time where I'm going to be in the Word. I'm going to set aside a time where I'm going to pray. And I'm going to do my very best to not let it be interrupted by other things. And I'm going to do this on the days that I feel like it. I'm going to do this on the days that I don't feel like it. I'm just going to keep going always. We use an analogy sometimes in, in our staff meeting plan. We've talked about this concept in the past of a 20-mile march. I've shared this concept with you before. What, how would you make the journey on foot from one coast to the other if you decide that's what you're going to do? How would you do it? You want to start on the east coast, you're going to walk all the way to the west coast from one beach to the other. What would you do? Well, my challenge to you would be take on the discipline of something like a 20-mile march. That means on days where the weather's great and it's kind of cool and there's a breeze and you could go 50 or 60, you go 20. And you save yourself for the next day so you can do another 20. But also on those days where it's cold and rainy or the walk is all uphill, you still do 20. You keep going and you keep going and that 20-mile march, you'll make it. But if you do this sporadically, you never will. Consistency. What about intensity? What about intensity? I'm not going at the word just flippantly or casually. I'm going there hungry because I want to learn something. I want to understand something. I want to do something. I want to do what this word says. So I'm going to go at this with, with some intensity. I'm not just playing around. As Paul said, I'm, I'm not just boxing the air here. I'm working for something. And the third word would be accountability. It would be accountability. How many of you can testify in some way to the value of someone in your life that's held you accountable? How are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on in your life? What did you learn from that? How many of you have got somebody like that in your life? Or a small group like that in your life? Or a discipling group like that in your life? You know, I, I wanted to use some analogies, but I would come off as kind of, you know, fraudulent. Use all these workout analogies because you'd be looking like, oh, I didn't know you worked out. And that would be really insulting to me. <laughs> so I'm not, and I don't. But when I did, I can tell you the value of accountability because I knew someone was going to be standing at that gym waiting for me to meet there at that appointed time. And sometimes I had no desire to go for myself or any other reason, except for I know he's going to be standing there, and i got to show up. i got to show up, and that's okay. Sometimes that person helped me through. Maybe sometimes I'd help that person through. 
but consistency, intensity, and accountability. And why do we do it? Look at this eternal expectation, which is the cause of our discipling. Why are we doing this? What's the point? Listen to what he says. He says, to this end, we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God. Why do we toil and strive? We have set our hope on the living God. When it comes to spiritual training, you're not just training for a better life. How do you get through the troubles of life? How do you deal with difficulties and hardships? How do you not fall away from the faith? How do you how do you help raise up a strong generation? It's not just for a better life. You're training for eternal life. In our disciple-making, God is fitting us for heaven. And our part of that, that sanctification, God fitting us for heaven, is discipleship. This is what he aims to do in us. This is the purpose of your salvation. The purpose of your salvation is not just so that you go to heaven but that you're prepared for heaven, that he's shaping you throughout this life to be more and more and more conformed to the image of his son, that you're becoming the person that God has recreated you in salvation to be. This is the point. This is what we do. We keep this before each other. Remember, listen to his last phrase of this. We have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That is not teaching universalism. It's not teaching anything wonky that we wouldn't already understand and know. It's talking about the universal offer, offer of salvation made through Christ, effectively received by those who believe. But listen, here's the, here's the issue for us. Our discipling has not reached its natural end our disciple-making has not reached its intended result until more disciples are being made. How do we know that we're really growing as disciples? How do we know that we're really growing up into him who's Christ? As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, how do we know that this is happening? When we are an instrument of God through whom he makes more disciples. Disciples making disciples. You grow up in this and be strong in this. Keep this before the brothers and remember this God who saved you through his son will save anyone who'll come to him. And so, disciples making disciples, it's a reminder to us that Jesus is not only our hope, he's the only hope. How do we evaluate ultimately our, our disciple making here? How do we say, are we doing a good job? We've, we talk a lot about discipleship and disciple-making. We want that to be part of our culture. How do we know that we're really doing it? How do we know that we're having real success in life groups and D groups and one-on-one relationships? When we begin to see disciples making disciples, disciples making disciples, that, that is the aim. What about you? What's your training look like? Do you have a regimen? Do you have a plan? Do you have a partner? Do you have accountability? Do you have an aim, a goal? The, the first step is to recognize apathy before atrophy comes. But if atrophy is there, then the good news is you can get into some spiritual rehab. You can get started again. You can be part of a small group. You can be part of a life group. You can be part of a D group. You can find people who would be happy to, to spend time discipling you. You can begin practicing the spiritual disciplines that will make a difference in your life. Training. 
Not just trying. I'm trying to be a better Christian. Don't try. Train. Train to be a better Christian. If you want to talk more about that, we'd love to talk to you more. Dan is our discipleship pastor. Doesn't mean he, he's the only one who does discipleship. That means he kind of runs in that lane for discipling groups and relationships. He'll be back there at that Next Steps kiosk. If you're not part of a small group or a D group and would like to be one or would just like to talk about what can I do next, stop at that Next Steps table. If you'd like to speak to any of our pastors or elders, we'd love to talk to you about what's happening here, what we're offering, um, what sort of groups are gathering. But if you want to just talk to someone about re-engaging in your spiritual life, recommitting to it, then in just a moment, I'm invite you to come forward. Why don't you take the hand of one of the people here and let's talk about it. Let's talk about, let's talk about getting back on the, the right page with God again. And if you're not a Christian yet, if you're not a Christian yet, God is calling you to do more than just believe that He is real. He's calling you to do more than just believe what Jesus did. He's calling you to live a life under the lordship of christ the life he intends you to live the one good life life to the full and i'd love to talk to you about that i'm going to invite you to come if that's you in just a moment would you pray with me this morning father may we father may we be real and sincere about this not give lip service to it father may we may we work hard at this and encourage each other to do the same Father, I pray that you would establish, we would participate in the establishment of a culture that values so much your word and what it says, but not just as, as students or, or scholars, but Father, as, as obedient subjects of the King who's given us a word. Father, we would do it, that we would long to be like Christ and live like Christ. And Father, that we would be selfless enough to want that for each other and to help each other and be invested in each other and involved with each other. And Father, that it wouldn't stop here just in a closed-loop system of believers becoming better ones or disciples becoming more Christ-like ones. But Father, we would take this truth and we would share it. We'd talk about it. We'd get excited about it. And Father, that you would use our lives as we grow it's very capable instruments in your hand to make new disciples. Father, the words that we speak and the lives that we live and the time that we are, we're willing to give, Father, I pray that more and more disciples will be made. Father, may we stand firm, hold fast together, finish well together as a people. So, Father, we want to keep these things in front of us. We, we teach and we command. We explain and we expect and we trust you to work in it, Father, for your glory and for our everlasting good. For this has profit, profitability in all things, both now and in the life to come. So, Father, stir us up. If there are spiritually lazy ones among us, spiritually apathetic ones among us, God, even those who have become atrophied and just their spiritual life seems to all but have ebbed away, then, Father, today, I pray today would be a day of new beginnings, new commitments. I'm going to start today. I'm going to renew my commitment to these things today. Father, may today be a day of action. And Lord, be well pleased in that. Empower that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.